Hi everyone and welcome to week three of this St Nooks at Four podcast. If you've listened to the first two episodes you'll know that this isn't so much a polished performance as a conversation um, reflecting on some of the themes that have been opened up for us this week. As we journey through Holy Week together there is lots for us to process and hopefully as we begin this new week with a bank holiday we have a little bit of additional time to reflect on what God might be saying to us and for us um, in these days. I've been enjoying the sunshine recently but I woke to a slightly greyer day um, and a fresh wind today so um, hopefully you're getting a chance to make the most of this bank holiday. But this morning I wanted to focus our minds back on some of the things that we've been considering over the last few days and in particular that moment where Mary fails to recognise Jesus outside of the tomb. We read it in our reading from John chapter 20 and I'm going to take us back there this morning. The chapter begins early on the first day of the week while it was still dark Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. And then we get a few chapters with the arrival of two of the disciples and they discover that the tomb is empty. Then these disciples return to their homes and verse 11 says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? For whom are you looking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. It's an intriguing um, set of details here in John's Gospel. And I'm intrigued by this moment where Mary thinks that Jesus is the gardener. Perhaps... As was suggested yesterday, perhaps it's because she wasn't expecting to see Jesus. There are times in our lives when we come across something so unexpected that we just don't really notice it. It's almost like it's out of place. So perhaps it was that Mary just wasn't expecting Jesus to, to see Jesus there, alive and upright. Other people have said that perhaps it's because that Mary was weeping and through these 
eyes filled with tears, she failed to recognise Jesus stood there before her. And even whether you feel these two start to explain it, even when Jesus speaks her name or speaks to her, even when Jesus speaks to her, she still doesn't recognise him. And in fact, it's not until he says her name that she recognises him as her teacher. Perhaps this says something about the context of this conversation. What Mary was expecting to see was maybe a gardener at work in this garden. I like the fact that a gardener would look different to these two angels that she's just met who were described as, as sitting in white and I imagine them kind of gleaming or shining or, or vibrant or, or golden or something angelic. And then she sees Jesus and she mistakes him for the gardener. You may already know that my dad was a gardener. He seemed to spend a lot of his working life in his green overalls and his work boots. And gardeners tend not to be so gleaming white. They tend not to be quite so shiny and bright. In fact, gardeners, we might even describe them as grubby. Not in a kind of dirty way, but in a grounded, earthy way. Maybe there's something about my dad's hands that even after they were clean, they looked as though soil and were kind of ingrained into, into his skin. But there's something about a gardener that isn't pristine and shiny and bright and new. Maybe there's something else about this idea of a gardener. Maybe it's no surprise that a garden is like this pivotal context in the whole of the kind of the history of salvation. In fact, the Bible is kind of a story that sits between two gardens, the Garden of Eden, and then finally that New Jerusalem with its centered around this um, tree. In his book, From Eden to the New Jerusalem, Desmond Alexander describes the big picture in this way. As we move from Genesis to Revelation, a consistent and coherent pattern emerges, centred on the idea that God created this earth with the intention of constructing an arboreal temple city. It's an interesting word, arboreal. It's not one I hear or use very often, but it's this idea of living in or around trees. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve lived around a tree. The Garden of Eden was centered around trees. And there was something very key to that engagement with God and those and Adam and Eve that was based around trees. And then later on in the New Jerusalem, the sense that a tree is again um, a central kind of motif, a central image, a central context for 
that new arrival of that new Jerusalem. I have a few memories of trees working with my dad. It's interesting that most of my memories don't involve the growing of trees, which takes a lot of time, although we did plant quite a few trees. Um, my key memories involve the removal and the cutting down of trees. I remember holding on to a rope which was tied to the top of a tree and being told to pull as this tree was being felled. And I remember as I was trying to pull, suddenly this tree swings away and I'm pulled off my feet. Or perhaps another time when we were clearing trees alongside a road and using a road closure and we got our signals mixed up. And instead of me holding back the traffic with a stop sign, I let the traffic through almost as this branch of a tree was being dropped into the road. Fortunately, there, was, there wasn't an accident, no one was hurt, but um, it was one of those moments where, yes, um, it would have been helpful if the tree had gone down a different route or into a different place. But there is something about trees that is central to God's vision for his engaging with humanity. And um, perhaps this word arboreal is something that we um, can consider. What does it mean to be a people whose lives revolve around a tree? Jesus even described himself as a tree, perhaps not what we might consider a big tree. We might think of an oak being an example of a kind of conspicuous and significant tree in our culture. Jesus described himself, himself as a vine and us as the branches. I have a vine in my garden, still in its pot, waiting to find its place in the ground. In some ways, sat in that pot, it's surviving, but as we plant it in the ground, in the place where it can set down its roots, we're hoping it thrives. So what might creation be about and why, why might these gardens be so important in our days? Well, I think there is a sense that God has designed us to engage with gardens and with his creation. Um, but this morning, I just want to give you a few ideas from a book called The Garden Resonates by Chris Falmsby. If you want to have a read of it, I'm happy to lend it to you or I can post a link to this book. Or if you um, enjoy some of the thoughts that he's expressing, you might want to get it and read it for yourself. It's a fantastic read. But this book has or tries to capture a sense of why the garden is such a central um, context in God's story and in, in his engagement with humanity. I'm going to read a few pages of it or a few um, passages from it. It's going to take 10 minutes or so, um, but hopefully it's a, a useful overview of some of the ideas that Chris has got as he links um, this garden context with how we can be relevant to our culture in these days. Chapter 3 is defined or described three gardens and a pattern for, transcend for transcendence. 
And it's from chapter 3 that I want to read a few excerpts. Hopefully these excerpts will all kind of make sense as you piece them together, but I realise that I'm picking pieces out of this chapter rather than reading the whole chapter through. So this is an excerpt from The Garden Resonates by Chris Formsby. In this chapter, I will focus my ideas around three gardens in the biblical narrative. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Jesus' tomb, and the Garden of the New City. In each of the gardens, we discover four essential characteristics that ultimately form a pattern for transcendence. The first garden is the Garden of Eden. When you read or hear the phrase, the Garden of Eden, you should think paradise. The word paradise comes from the Persian word pardis and essentially means enclosed or walled garden. When we use the word paradise today, we think of a place that is essentially perfect or a place that is ideal. Paradise for me is the coastal shore of the state of Maine, where I can sit for hours and watch the waves crash upon the rocky terrain. We all have a paradise, an idyllic physical place or mental space in which we long to exist if even for a moment. The Garden of Eden is also known as the Garden of God, was God's good creation in which God placed humans, meaning the garden was God's gift to humanity. It was good because it was God's powerful and creative act that expressed God's glory and accomplishment. The garden was pleasant to the eyes and good for food. Two notable, notable trees that existed in the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eden was God's gift and God's design for the way human life was supposed to live under the reign of God. Created in the image of God, humans were meant to represent God with the whole of their life. Humans had a mission to represent the loving, holy and just nature of God and to work with God to care for all creation. The second garden is the garden of Jesus' tomb. Just as with the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Jesus' tomb is not explicitly described for us. However, here are some conclusions that we can make from the information we have. The Garden of Jesus' tomb is meant to help us reflect upon the Garden of Eden in which humans rebelled. The Garden of Jesus' tomb helps us live into the hope that through the resurrection of Jesus, God restores the world. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, humans can grow toward their true selves, which is to live into the image of God. People who possess the intellect, emotion, will and freedom to love God and love others. Just like Eden, the tomb of Jesus is marked by the gift of life over the consequence of death. Jesus is the second Adam, undoing what Adam and Eve put into motion through their choice to live for self and usurp God's authority. The human cravings of plenty, fulfilment, love and completeness that were key characteristics of Eden can be experienced through the events in the garden of Jesus' tomb. The garden of Jesus' tomb lacked nothing just like Eden. In fact, the garden, because of the resurrection, provides a new beginning or fresh start. 
New life is more than just a second chance. A new life offers a different meaning and purpose for human existence altogether. I believe it is worth noting that the previous garden we find Jesus in prior to his resurrection, the Garden of Gethsemane, might be described as the exact opposite of the Garden of Jesus' tomb. While the Garden of Jesus' tomb is robustly filled with life, hope and peace, Gethsemane was not. Gethsemane was undeniably filled with anguish, betrayal and violence. This contrast is, in my opinion, meant to help us see the two worlds vacant to humanity. On one hand, we have a world available for humans to choose marked by suffering and evil, and the other marked by hope, life and light. Let me remind you that hope is not wishful thinking. The resurrection of Jesus does not allow for private, easy wishes you prepare in your mind before you blow out the candles on your cake. Instead, the resurrection of Jesus produces a public hope that one day all things will be made new and therefore gives practical and immediate direction for the way we live our lives as Christians. Clearly, the Garden of Jesus' tomb and the Garden of Eden are symbolic of God's desire for the world to be made whole. Although the physical appearance and setting of these gardens are different, the symbolism is the same. God longs for God's intended world of wholeness to be realised. We realise God's dream when we choose to believe in Jesus, and because of our trust in Jesus, choose to live out the kingdom values Jesus taught and demonstrated. The third garden is the Garden of the New City. We have a little more information about what I refer to as the Garden of the New City than the other two gardens I've briefly described. The Garden of the New City, as you might expect, has several key traits that overtly linked, link it to the preceding two argument gardens outlined. The garden is designed, described to have a flowing river like Eden. This river likely symbolises the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, the promise of life everlasting and the enduring and plentiful plentiful life God gifts to God's people. Like Eden, the tree of life sits thriving and blossoming in the garden on either side of the river. The tree of life bears crops throughout all seasons. Every month the tree bears fruit. The fruit the tree of life produces is meant for the healing of the nations. The curse of pain and death is reversed. God dwells with God's people upon God's throne. The name of God is written on the forehead of the people and the people are able to see God's face. There is no night. The death, darkness, evil and brokenness of the world is no longer. The light is so bright there isn't need for a lamp or even the sun. God reigns with God's people as the people rejoice endlessly. The kingdom of God is consummated just as God has promised and all things are made new. The garden of the new city brings God's creation full circle. God's intended way of life is realised and the purity and the flawlessness that once marked the garden of Eden is finally present again. This is the full gospel story. One day all things will be made new and those who trust in Jesus will experience the wholeness in which God longs to once again dwell with God's people. I believe there are four primary elements to the th in the, the three garden narratives that we've discussed. These four primary elements of transcendence are power, peace, presence and provision.
God's power was clearly evident in each of the three gardens. At the time of creation in the Garden of Eden, God creates out of nothing, simply through an imaginative thought and the spoken word. All that we have come to know as real in this world immediately resulted. God's power is also unmistakably existent at the time of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God exercised God's authority and, through the mighty act of raising Jesus from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. Finally, we have the promise of God that at the time of consummation of the kingdom of God, God will again employ God's strength and the result will be a world fully restored to its intended wholeness. A world with no more mourning, darkness, brokenness, pain, suffering, oppression or injustice of any kind. Peace is not simply the absence of conflict, it is completeness, well-being and harmony. The result of God's peace is wholeness. Peace in the Garden of Eden at the time of creation is very simply the idea that when God ordered the world out of chaos, God did so exactly the way God intended to. Prior to the human rebellion in Genesis chapter 3, the order of the universe was union with God, contentedness with self, closeness and affection with one another, and a deep sense of enjoyment or pleasure for all that God had created. Peace in the garden of Jesus' tomb upon the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus is evidenced in the truth that through the atonement there is a new order, and the new order of relationships consists of the possibility for reunion with God, renewed con content with self, a profound and lasting kingdom community and a renewed gladness for the whole of creation. The garden of the new city contains God's peace as well. God's peace in this garden is manifested by the final order of all things made new. If the garden of Eden establishes order characterised by wholeness and the garden of Jesus' tomb establishes the new order by the possibility of wholeness again through the atonement of Jesus, then the final order in the garden of the new city establishes for all time an unbreakable unity and completeness we might better call, just call absolute wholeness. God's provision for all of humanity is God's breath or spirit within each one of us. The result of God's provision is life. In the Garden of Eden, the Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life Life separates humanity from all inorganic matter and carries with it the capacity for existence in ways such as organisation, growth, reproduction and responsive action and adaptation. Life, meaning the spirit or breath we are given as a gift, demands that we depend on God. This simple and often taken for granted rhythm of inhaling and exhaling reminds us to depend on God, the source of life. If you are up for it, stop reading this book. Put it down and take five deep breaths, and each time you exhale, remind yourself that God is the life giver. At the Garden of Jesus' tomb, we are given new life, because we are all given the gift of life in the physical sense, and because of the resurrection of Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit and our trust in Jesus, we are awakened to the Spirit, and granted an opportunity to live a new life in a spiritual sense. All who believe are given through this new life, direction, purpose, hope, and ultimately a new endpoint in life. This is what it means to be born again. In the garden of the new city stands the tree of life. 
This tree represents a, a perpetual life that is sustained by God's love and faithfulness. The tree of life and the crops of fruit that it produces without pause represent a life without death, a cosmos without sin and an unending healing of the nations. Humanity as depicted by the endless fruit means that agony gives way to relief, relief and God's provision of eternal life pardons us from an unrelenting existence in a sinful state, allowing us to once again, as was God's intended design for creation, live into wholeness, harmony and in complete relational unity with God, self, others and the entire cosmos. God's presence with humanity and with all of creation reveals God's desire for a close and personal relationship. In the Garden of Eden, God's presence is understood in both God's powerful display of God's glory, as well as God's desire to be near Adam and Eve in the Garden. God clearly desires a deep level of intimacy with human beings, as God meets with humans face to face. The very fact that God desires offspring and created humans is reason alone to believe that God longs to dwell with God's creation. However, God's descent into where humanity resides displays God's longing to dwell peacefully with God's creation. In the Garden of Jesus' tomb, God is very literally present with humanity when God, the risen Son, reveals himself to Mary Magdalene. Mary confuses Jesus with who she believes is the gardener until he calls her name and she breaks from her mourning to rejoice in the fact that not only has Jesus' body been found, but he has risen. Upon Jesus' prompting, Mary leaves the garden, races back to the other disciples and exclaims, I've seen the Lord, and she continues to tell disciples of her experience. What comfort, joy and excitement it must have been for Mary to see Jesus' face, to recognise Jesus as her friend, as her saviour. This is what the presence of God does. It produces an unparalleled intimacy that heightens the relational sense of our soul. For Mary to see Jesus' face was not only to realise Jesus was alive, but to also realise Jesus was truly her God. I'm going up to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, Jesus said in John 20 verse 17. God longs to be with God's children. The Garden of the New City also reveals God's deep longing for continued intimacy with God's people. Revelation chapters 21 and 22 very clearly speak of God's dwelling with God's people. Verse 3 of Revelation chapter 21 reads, Look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. Equally as clear is chapter 22 verse 4 which reads, They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Clearly, God longs to be with God's people. We must become churches where we create garden-like environments. Our mission, methods and message must be driven by God's power, peace, provision and presence. Cultivating these four elements in our churches is half the job, however. The other half is finding ways to create garden-like environments outside of the church, where power, peace, provision and presence are visible, accessible and tangible. The places we work, live and play should be places that we are cultivating garden-like lifestyles, where transcendence can be experienced. The baseball diamond where I sweat in the Midwest summer heat can be a garden. 
the office where you work, the health club where you work out, the pub you like to frequent, the seats near your season tickets at the stadium, and even the place where you shop can be a garden-like setting in which people can experience the power, peace, provision and presence of God. Some practical ways to begin cultivating garden-like environments. Gather where people are, not where you want them to be. People gather around like-minded people, coffee shops, restaurants, pubs, sporting events. You may have to work you may have to work to find where people hang out. When you do discover where it is they hang out, don't be a dork. Don't be that person who tries too hard to fit in. Just make sure to be present and available. Interact for sure, don't just sit there and be silent. Feel free to talk to people, just be winsome and socially aware. I know a person from my church who volunteers his time at high school debate competitions as a judge in order just to be around teens and learn from them. Two, invite people to enjoy what you enjoy. I like to play golf. I'm not very good at it, but I like to play. Last summer, I invited one of my co-workers, who is a, mill a millennial, and asked him to bring two friends. We had a great round and lots of fun. Number three, listen to their story. Take the time to ask about a person's life and then be willing to listen. One of my favourite questions to ask a person is, what do you do for fun? You'd be amazed at the number of people who have shared their whole life story with me as a result of a non-threatening question about what a person enjoys. Number four, ask questions. I have a friend who desperately wants to share with emerging generations his life story. He spent five years in prison and wants to help younger people avoid making similar life-altering series of mistakes. He has a powerful story and is incredibly articulate. The problem, however, is he never shuts up, so people don't want to talk with him. Be sure to let people speak about their own lives. Just as you want to tell your own story to anyone who will listen, so too do others. Number five, celebrate a local win. A few years ago, the Kansas City Royals won the World Series. After the Royals won it all, we threw a massive party for the community. I met so many new people that day because, well, who doesn't love a good party? Number six, hire them to do a job. I've hired people before for work that I didn't even really need done. I knew they could use the extra income, so I hired them. Then I worked alongside them for the duration of the job and it helped out the person needing some extra cash, and it helped me to get some yard work done, all the while building a friendship. Number seven, get out of your comfort zone, which likely means leave your house. It sounds simple, but if you want to engage people in the cul-de-sac and in the neighborhood, you'll have to get out of your house. What if the ends of the earth that Jesus talks about in Acts one is the end of the driveway? Meet specific needs in your community. Participate in the canned food drives, the school supplies drives, and so forth. Don't just participate, however. Intentionally ask some others, particularly emerging generations, to help you. Be generous with your time and energy. Stop looking at your watch. Are you really in that much of a hurry all the time? We all know that taking the time to be present with people and to use our available energies to be with others make a huge impact in the hearts and minds of others. Walk when possible. Are there places where you can walk to? If so, do it. You'll meet lots of people along the way. 
show up often. I can be found at a local establishment several times a week. This is not for any reason other than it puts me in touch with people on a regular basis. What used to be a few chairs spread out with people sitting quietly by themselves has become, at my hangout, a group of people circling their chairs, chairs to be with one another. That happens over time and because you show up often. Participate in city-wide programmes or events. Run, walk, march, community garden, clean-up day and so forth. What is happening in the city that you can participate in and meet new people? Millennials love experiences and they look for them to find enjoyment in doing so. Share your story. Your story of conversion is powerful. It is your story and no one can take it from you. Your story is also portable. It travels with you wherever you go. Your story is personal and it happened to you. Finally, your story is practical. It is real. Don't be afraid to cultivate garden-like environments by sharing your faith story. Hopefully you enjoyed those a few minutes of The Garden Resonates from Chris Folmsby. I must admit, I loved reading his book and I realised that some of these practical tips are difficult to do during these days of isolation. But creating garden-like environments in our life and in our shared lives together seems like a good metaphor for what the, God of the Kingdom of God might look like in our lives. So as we plan for these days where we are apart, how can we be looking to see life springing up in, amongst and between us in these days? I'm hoping that the garden and what it means to be gardeners in God's kingdom is a helpful metaphor for you this week. Um, perhaps it gives us some things to be considering as we move forwards together. This is Jono saying um, goodbye and hope to catch up soon. God bless. Catch you later.